0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a mild Tuesday morning. It is the beginning of August, so the weather at the moment is lovely, but the wind should pick up somewhere in the n- next week, carry on until September. It seems to do that with an it's strange regularity. And so mild as the weather may be, uh, our politics is never mild. In fact, I think one could probably just as safely describe it as bordering on, if not over-toxic and so let's start with the, one of the most toxic projects of them all, and that is the completion of Madupi, the one of the two power plants that was started being built in 2000, it was meant to be finished in 2014, no, started earlier, and has overrun its cost by about five times. It's apparently the most expensive power station in, bigger, in the world. So let me read how Daily Maverick describes, a Business Maverick rather, and this is as follows. That the last unit of ESCOM's first mega project in 30 years has come on stream is not cause for celebration. Madupi and its evil twin Kusile will be remembered, not for bringing power to South Africa, but for their abject lessons in poor leadership and questionable decision-making, not to mention corruption, for which South Africa will pay for decades to come, they describe it also as a power behemoth, and physically it certainly is. Um, it's I, I, if, I don't know if you've seen pictures of it. I haven't seen it in the flesh, so to speak, but it is this huge chunk of s- sort of rectangular power plant up in the wilds of Lepalale. It's actually, I think, quite creepy, but be that as it may, there it is, and apparently it's completed. The fact that it's completed does not necessarily more mean that it it's performing to the extent which, uh, which we require. Generally, performance needs to be at 90% in a power station to achieve the power needs of, of the country. And the current uptime apparently is closer to 63.3% for the five units, Excluding unit one has six altogether. So this also, this does take into account the fact that three units have had to be switched off for 75 days each to correct design defects and one is currently off. So the design defects hint that this has been a site of, of real of of real um, um, what what would you call it I don't know it it, it captures the state capture project if I can put it that way it is the behemoth of a behemoth of state capture that from which this country is suffering but we have to put up with it in the meantime and we will possibly delve I will delve into the nasty little bits and pieces that have gone into the creation of Doopy. Hi FM your station of
1: choice since 2008
0: I think we should go back to Madupi because one tends to forget. I mean, I was a lot younger when it started being built, and I'm a lot older now that it has been built. But it started off with Chancellor House getting a 25 stake in Hitachi, Africa, which uh, now Hitachi (laughs) was responsible for for building the boilers at Um, Madupi. Chancellor House, in exchange for the contract, got a $1 million success fee and a five $5 million in dividends in connection with both contracts. Okay, so it wasn't just the one. The Hitachi boiler contract apparently remains the largest contract signed by Ascom in its 90-year history. And, but can you believe it? Part of the reason for the delays has been shoddy design and shoddy workmanship. I mean, this is just Extraordinary. And Chris Yelland, energy expert and MD of EE Publishers, says, In a project of this size, it is normal for the customer, namely ESCOM, to appoint an independent contractor to oversee the engineering, procuring, procurement, and construction. This contractor would then appoint subcontractors for civil works, boiler works, the turbo alternator contract, ash handling, control and instrumentation, and so on. And the, the, that contractor, that sort of head contractor, is responsible for ensuring that the project is delivered on time, on budget, and according to specification. But, surprise, surprise, ESCOM allocated the responsibility, took it on itself, um, despite, and took it on itself despite the fact that it took it in, at way too expensive an amount. Now, ESCOM apparently had, done, had not done a, build, a big build in over 20 years. And it had lost in that time significant engineering and project management skill. But it chose to take on all that risk for an apparent ten percent saving, which might have been saved on the had they not taken the one and five million dollars respectively. And it is very much in partly and mostly due to these mega projects that ESCOM's debt is now hovering around four hundred million Rand and National Treasury just doesn't know how to resolve that. Um, what's really frightening from a, from a consumer point of view is that between 2006 and 2017, so what's that, 11 years, electricity tariffs in this country, which were once the cheapest in the world for the most reliable energy, have increased by 488%. So there's, there seems to be a, a nice sort of, you know, 480% Increase in tariffs And probably a 488% Reliability in the provision of Electricity Um, As long ago as 2015 ESCOM was Downgraded to junk status By Standard and Poor So just in case That wasn't enough uh, Madupi Is set to spew 32,000 million Tons of carbon Dioxide equivalent into the air every year more, And that essentially Is more than 115 other countries Emit individually And is about 5% of South Africa's Emissions So you've got to wonder about the Probable hypocrisy When our government And our president in particular Makes a grand deal About carbon tax And cutting down carbon emissions So that we become greener etc The carbon tax is just to make up for money that the ANC can no longer steal, and the emissions is, is a pipe dream. And it, you know, one has to give some of, some some opportunity to developing countries, uh, not to be bound. Not to be bound by strict, not to be bound by strict envi- environmental requirements. I don't know I, I i i don't know if if much has been learned by this um i don't it's probably too late to even consider proper and properly built nuclear plants because, even though they are the most expensive to build they are the cheapest, cleanest, and most reliable so here we go uh the day in South Africa's energy complex right uh then go on to another subject that will surprise absolutely no one and uh That is that foreign direct investment in South Africa fell by 39% to $3.1 billion in 2020. This is according to the latest data from the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. And, of course, it had to have been exacerbated considerably by COVID, as would have happened in the rest of the world. We wouldn't be any different in that regard. But whereas other people are climbing out of the hole, um, we are unlikely to improve this year for a whole lot of reasons, not least of which was the fact that our economy was in dire straits before COVID, although um, government doesn't tend to highlight, highlight that all very much. And it's unlikely to improve this year, not just because of COVID and the policies of the government and the rigidity that makes investing locally and internationally un- unattractive, but the, the recent unrest, looting, damage, etc., in in KwaZulu Natal and clouting in particular, ensured that we don't ever get out of this mess under the current government. So that's that is where we stand. By now, we're actually sort of on our knees rather than standing.
1: I FM 101.9 megahertz of life.
0: We now go on to our interview slot with a a man who is a legislative and policy consultant for Sakelicher and the Free Market Foundation. He is also pursuing a doctorate in law at the University of Pretoria. I'd I'd like to welcome previous guest, Martin van Staden. Martin, how
1: are you? Hello, Sarah. Thank you uh, very much for having me on again. I'm great. And yourself?
0: Well, thank you. I have nabbed you for... The, for the postponement or the possible postponement of the municipal elections, because you wrote a, a really clear article on why these elections cannot be postponed legally. But before I get into your argument, can I just look at some of the practicalities of, of where we've come on in this, um, in this respect? I believe the I see the Independent Electoral Commission has had been asking in the in about the last six weeks or in a period of six weeks for a postponement of these elections um, and nothing has happened so essentially what they've done is the IC asked uh, former deputy um, judge president president uh, of the Constitutional Court. Uh, Judge Dichang Moseneke To lead an inquiry on t- into whether Conditions would be conducive to holding Free and fair elections uh, A number of political parties had called For them and uh, the Due date though not the proclaimed, formally proclaimed date was Wednesday The 27th of October um, Basically what Moseneke found in a nutshell Was it was not reasonably possible And not likely that the polls Could be free and fair and he re- recommended The elections be postponed Until no later than February 2022. Now the reasons he gave for that are low vaccination rate, mostly health concerns, low vaccination rates, a possible fourth wave expected at the end of the year, and risks associated with large political gatherings while campaigning. Martin, in your view, would that be, would that be enough? Would it make it, would all these health concerns make it, uh, and not free and unfair um, and certainly my understanding is that most medical experts said the the health risks are lower are likely to be lower than rather than greater
1: Look, I think there's a few things to take into account here. And the first is that uh, multiple countries around the world have had elections uh, during this COVID period since uh, early last year. Uh, Democracy hasn't been suspended around the world necessarily. And we haven't seen elections necessarily leading to mass graves around the world. Um, So I I think maybe the health concerns might be misplaced. I mean, uh, uh, social distancing can still be observed at at polling stations. Uh, Things can be sanitized to the extent that that uh, uh, works and so forth. That's the first thing. The second thing is. Uh, and and I, I say this with all due respect to uh Judge Mozuneke, um you should know this. The constitution does not allow for a discretion here. It doesn't matter if the election could be uh, uh free or fair during COVID. The the fact is the government has to make sure that the election is free and fair within the period that it has been allo- allotted and uh, that is end of end of October is the 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 maximum period you cannot go past that date so if the judge uh believes that uh, it's 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 going to be difficult to have a free and fair election in in uh, in this period i mean it's uh, uh that's unfortunate but the the mm. tough the tough shit rule really applies in this case <laughs> uh, the the fact is simply you need to make it as free and fair as you possibly can because you don't really have a choice. The Constitution does not give you that discretion that the judge assumed exists that that there could be a postponement until February. Now, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, listeners might be familiar with – uh, the limitations clause of the constitution, which says that rights may be limited, and a lot of people will probably say, "But, but th- this means that uh, your right to vote and so on may be limited if it's justifiable under certain circumstances." But the important thing to note here is that that applies only to the Bill of Rights, and the provisions that say that the election act has, has to be held by the end of October uh, are not in the Bill of Rights. It's part of the structural provisions mm. of the constitution. So. Even there, there is no way, there is absolutely no lawful constitutional way for this government or the uh, IEC to postpone the election past October. It's simply not legally possible.
0: So as I understand, Martin, basically what happens is that a a municipality has a lifespan of five years, and from the day it starts to the day it ends, from that point on, an must be held within 90 days of that date. There's, there's no provision in the Constitution for extension of that date. It has to be held anywhere within the, that 90 days. Am, am I understanding correctly?
1: Yes that is that is perfectly correct um uh one of your colleagues at the uh, IRR in fact uh, uh shared what he thinks government might do uh uh to to circumvent this and that is to get a provincial or national government to intervene in terms of the constitution in a municipal council and that uh, uh uh, transfer some powers to to the provincial and and the the national level, uh, uh, but that uh, to me, <laughs> uh, I, I I mean this I, I don't use this word lightly, but a, a, a coup is is, mm-hmm. is is what comes to mind if mm-hmm. if provisions of the constitution are used in that fashion, and I don't think that will be lawful because that is certainly not what the constitution contemplates. The what? constitution in section one five nine is very clear. Uh, that it's uh, that a municipal term is five years, and that an election must be held within 90 days of the end of a municipal mm. term. And uh, uh, I, I don't want to bore listeners with have uh legal and jurisprudential uh, terms, but this is a prime example of a of a provision, a statutory provision, that you simply read and give effect to. Uh, there is no uh, ambiguous words mm. or no uh, 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 vague wording like reasonable or uh, ju- uh, uh, justifiable and and these words that might require a judge to look at the common law and to look at uh, precedent and to look at aids of construction about how to uh, give effect to something. This is simply a provision that says, listen, you have 90 days after the end of this term you have an election. Mm. Uh, it, it cannot be overemphasized. That government mm. has absolutely no discretion here.
0: Mm. In fact, surely one would argue, I mean, one understands that it's often necessary for various legislative reasons, mostly you know the fact that a, a municipality is failing, for provincial government to step in and to administer it. But surely to add to your reason why that wouldn't be good enough, um, is, and it would effectively amount to a coup, is the fact that surely elections is what a municipality needs to try and improve the self-governance of the municipality.
1: No, absolutely. Uh, th- uh, these, uh, these terms and term limits are not a, uh, a nice to have. Uh, they are crucial. Uh, in the in the framework of democracy and of constitutionalism, and this is something that's been recognized for centuries. Uh, it's not yeah. something that can simply be uh, swept swept away. Uh, it's it's a crucial part of what it means to have a democratic uh, society. You cannot have uh, 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 political functionaries becoming so entrenched in their positions in municipalities or provinces or at national level uh, that they can start. Yeah. Expanding their 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 uh, their powers in in unacceptable and unconstitutional ways, which is what more time without elections allows. So it's it's not a matter of uh, the so-called right wing being uh, uh, agitators uh, for something uh, stupid during a pand- pandemic. Uh, this is a matter of. Uh, Protecting democratic constitutionalism. Mm. Uh, uh, so yes, absolutely. Uh, part and, and, and uh, municipal elections are uh, the exact thing that, uh, uh, contribute to a municipal government, uh, uh properly exercising its functions. Without mm-hmm. those elections, uh, uh the, the extent to which you can call the administration still the municipal government uh, becomes murky. So uh, you need those elections. Uh, and if a provincial mm-hmm. or national government intervenes to postpone an election, I mean, that is a, a clear example of a, an, an, un, un, an unlawful seizure of power.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, given the, the sort of certainty legally, which, I mean, law isn't often certain, is often Provisions require interpretation and there's arguments for and against. Surely, I would have, I would have thought that Dikhan Moksaneke would know this. And, uh, you know, his, his recommendation falls outside the law as you, as you point out in your article. What, what, what was he thinking?
1: Yeah, so. <laughs> Uh, this is, uh, unfortunately, the trouble with South African courts. And, uh, uh, of course, I always speak with all due respect to our courts, but they have adopted in large part something called uh, transformative constitutionalism. Uh, and uh, to cut through all the uh, legal philosophy of it, at the end of the day, it's a very uh, uh, dynamic, but in its worst possible sense, and fluid approach to constitutionalism. So they do not, uh, transformative constitutionalists, do not make the, the distinction between uh, reading uh, or interpreting a provision and constructing the meaning of that provision. Uh, to them, everything is construction, and that means that everything that the Constitution says uh, must be uh, uh must be influenced by this uh, aura, of values that the judge might hold, and uh, uh, so with COVID they might say that oh um, the poor will suffer the most if there's uh, another uh, wave during the election, and uh, uh, as a matter of social justice, uh, the election must be postponed. And you have to read, you have to read into this uh, term provision. Uh, the the the, into the fabric of it, you have to read this commitment to social justice and protecting the poor mm. uh, so it 's a very fluid approach to constitutionalism, which in my view um, and I think according to the the, the, to, to, the to the logic of constitutionalism itself uh, uh, is entirely contrary to what constitutionalism is about, and that is to limit. Uh, government and, in fact, to uh, uh, when you co- when it comes to a, a written constitution like ours, it is to lock in the meaning of uh, uh, legal rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is specifically there to bring about specificity, certainty, and to ensure that government acts. Uh, exactly as the text of the constitution directs it to act now the moment you adopt this fluid transformative constitutionalist approach all of that goes out the window because then you you start uh, allowing judges who have ideological agendas to um, permeate and litter their ideology throughout the constitution and, and 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 really it makes it makes the written constitution useless because then you have to start worrying about what is the ideological position mm. of the judge what is the ideological consensus of the judiciary uh, and that 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 really is not something that your ordinary south african uh, really has time to do every time they have to litigate on something or or give effect mm-hmm. to their rights and their interest their legal interests. So uh, unfortunately, I think uh, uh, Judge Motzinek and you could see this from his previous judgments uh, as well, which have been, been quite racialist, uh, 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 quite critical race theory uh, centric as well uh, on affirmative action and so forth, that he has bought into. Um, transformative mm-hmm. constitutionalism. In fact, he's written uh, journal articles where he says as much. Um, and uh, that makes his recommendation somewhat unsurprising. He has mm-hmm. this fluid approach to to constitutionalism. And uh, when he read this provision that we are reading, section 159, which says that it's a 90-day period and that's done, into this he could read a uh, a proviso saying unless it somehow is so bad for the poor and for the vulnerable uh, but that proviso doesn't exist in the text so mm. uh, it's it's very much a, a judicial philosophy issue uh, that we have uh, uh, which comes down to at the end of the day a very big lack of respect uh, for the written text of our constitution and, a, and, and an overriding commitment to certain ideological values that, that uh, people who subscribe to this judicial philosophy mm. read into the constitution, even though they are not there.
0: Mm. No, it, I, to put it sort of crudely, it sounds a bit like you know making up the law as you go along. Um, but also... And and we Africa, unfortunately, is a, co- a continent that proves the point. The, one of the things that is key, and you, you raised in your article, is that term limits are a crucial fi- a feature in a constitutional democracy because they go a considerable way to ensuring that no, no parliament is, is in place, parliament, municipality, whatever, is in place for more than a fixed period of time to... Re- to help resist that sort of creep where suddenly 20 years, well, we've had a ruling party in charge for 20 years, but without those time limits, the, the possibility of essentially take, uh, committing another coup and ruling indefinitely and, and then changing the laws to create presidents for life, that's what the, that's surely designed to uh, prevent.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you, you raise a point that we've had the ANC for, for 27 years now. And it is, it is the perfect case study for why we have term limits and for why maybe we haven't gone far enough with our term limits. The ANC as a, uh, a governing party has shown exactly what happens. When it becomes entrenched, we uh, our parliament legislates in such a way that no can almost never be the answer to to propose legislation. If Minister X proposes a piece of legislation, it is going to be legislation. There is no 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 two ways about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, a, in a more mature uh, democracy, even uh, the the ruling party might have debates uh, within its own ranks, saying maybe this isn't a good idea. But in South Africa, we have this. This thing where the ANC has become so entrenched uh, that it is uh, increasingly... Taking more power for itself. We can see this with the new equality amendment bill. We can see this with old bills like the hate speech bill, which haven't uh, been uh, enacted yet. The Mm. cyber crimes bill. All of these are examples of authoritarian legislation that is the result of a party that has not been subjected to the turnover test of democracy where uh, another ruling party comes in. And then you add, then you start seeing the competition of, uh, listen we won't take away your rights vote for us and then you uh, you have that 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 uh, competition and replacement that happens every few years that keeps mm. a democracy vibrant. Uh, now on the, on the individual level, that is what term limits are supposed to achieve. Uh, make sure that, uh, counselor X or MPX, uh, do not sit in their seat for too long. Uh, but clearly there is, there is an argument to be made to say, listen, maybe we should put term limits on, on political parties as well. Uh, saying mm. no party may be in power for more than, say, 10 years, uh, then there must be a turnover to another uh, political party. I don't know how that would work practically, but it it's, it just goes to show how, what term limits are meant to achieve and which even in South Africa they struggle to achieve. But, I mean, that's all the more reason for mm. us to not... Uh, 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 slide further down the slippery slope. We should protect the term limit system uh, insofar as it is useful uh, and not, not allow uh, uh, an obviously authoritarian state, uh, uh, increasingly authoritarian state, to seize more power for itself. We need to protect what little uh, structural limitations there are on government in South Africa uh, with all the power that civil society has.
0: Can I take you back to a, a sort of more practical issue And it, it, this whole idea of sort of protecting the poorest of the poor it Strikes me as somewhat patronizing Because its I, I'm not convinced that most of the time It is actually proved that something affects the poorest of the poor More than it affects the, the, the wealthy or the middle class uh, That's that's the first thing um, and that leads into my question because one of the things Mosoneki said was, uh, that parties would be on an unequal footing. The bigger parties will be able to use platforms such as social media effectively, um, during shifts online campaigning while smaller parties could not do so. Well, that strikes me as, well, he doesn't really know very much because online campaigning is much cheaper. Than uh, than campaigning in any other form of media, um, and it might it might be it might be much more fair if I can put it that way for smaller parties to camp, to be limit to campaign that way because there isn't that greater com- competition of posters and and door to doors and rallies etc etc, um, or, or am I looking at it sort of the, the wrong way round?
1: No, you're looking at it uh, exactly as, as it is. And I think uh, Judge Motseneke had a massive oversight in the form of the, uh, South, the uh, South African Capitalist Party, a uh, short-lived political party from the uh, previous national election, which announced its own establishment only two months before the election uh and it campaigned exclusively online that was uh part of its its uh its appeal it was a new a new thing and they were going to use the internet and they secured for themselves i believe 16000 votes uh, mostly from johannesburg and cape town uh, uh me and my colleague did some calculations at the time and had that election been a municipal election the uh, South African Capitalist Party would have won at least two seats in both the Cape Town and the uh, uh, Johannesburg Municipal Councils a party that was established just before the election could have won municipal seats. Uh, So uh, I think mosin argument falls apart there. Uh, I mean, in in the ordinary course of business, the larger parties are obviously always going to be more well-equipped to fight an election than a smaller party with more limited financial resources. But the Internet, as you said there, is actually a great equalizer. Mm. Uh, And nothing really stops a a, uh, a smaller party from you know, having a concerted uh, online campaign between now and October, end of October, latest, when the election must be held, and and taking away two, three, four additional seats uh, in a given municipal council, it is it is it is possible, uh, and not only is it possible, it is something that actually would have happened. Uh, mm. For a very new party, had an election, a municipal election been held mm. in, uh, in during the last uh, national elections in 2019. Mm. Uh, so it's uh, uh, is totally mis- uh, misdirected there. And mm. on your first point, uh, it's totally, yeah, it's entirely true that whenever abuse to the poor are made, it's a, it's a rhetorical device, it's a narrative device. The poor mm. are never asked, uh, the poor never talk to you about it. It's it's uh, and our government infamously. Uh, does absolutely no economic socio economic research to justify its policies and decisions uh, they just say it 's for the poor yeah, nobody knows no there's no proof for that it 's just uh something that 's thrown about uh, very liberally in, in the worst possible way f m one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life
0: welcome back um martin i'd like to mention something and get your comment on it in the last year and a half during COVID, we have had over 100 by-elections and the issues have never been presented as, as as this and the IC has been responsible for running them and as far as we know, those by-elections have been held perfectly adequately. There have been no complaints about irregularities or very few, that as I understand. So if we can do the by-elections, why can't we do the elections in the same in in the same circumstances
1: yeah i mean that is that is the the ultimate the million rand question when it comes to these things uh, what is the agenda uh, that's that's taking place here the fact is that we've had these by elections uh more popu- uh, populist countries than south africa have had general elections during covid uh, uh, there haven't been mass graves. Our by-elections all involve people standing in the same lines that they would during a municipal election or a general election. We haven't had reports of these by-elections leading to COVID hotspots and, uh, 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 people getting the disease, the, the virus in masses just by virtue of the election. So it, 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 it seemingly isn't, isn't true that COVID is a concern during this election. Uh, and the, the question needs to be what, it what, what's the problem? (laughs) Uh, we've known for five years that there was going to be an election this year. Uh, uh, and more or less we've known uh, around the time it has to be held. You cannot say that, uh, political parties, smaller political parties are disadvantaged. The election isn't a surprise. These political parties have been campaigning for, for the last five years. Uh, 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 for people to vote for them. So nothing has changed uh, between this municipal election and the previous one in 2016. Uh, uh, All the same circumstances obtained. We do have a pandemic, but uh, as by all accounts, it doesn't seem to be a relevant, uh, a massively relevant consideration uh, in the election. Uh, So we have to ask, what is the agenda? Why does uh, the IEC, which uh, let's be honest, is, is, uh, uh, appointed and selected by the ruling party. Why does it want the election to be postponed? What is the, uh, uh, uh the political agenda here? Does the ANC need more time to campaign? Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, is there something they're afraid of about having a, uh, the election now, losing power now, which they wouldn't in February, which is Moscineke's recommendation? I think there is a, a lot more analysis needed here to really ask what what's actually going on, because the reasons that Moscineke gives, uh, and which the IEC gives, are extremely superficial, and it all seems like a, an unnecessary. A distraction that we're going through, uh, and we need to remember they simply don't have a choice. The election mm-hmm. has to happen by end of October, otherwise South Africa is, uh, I guess, for uh, not for the first time in the grips of a constitutional crisis. Right. Uh, so what's going on?
0: Mm. Last question to you, and then, then is what do you think the Constitutional Court will do? Will it resist, given the clarity of, of the issue? Will it resist the transformative? Um, Legislative and uh, sort of legisl- uh, judicial framework, or could it actually end up approving an illegally approving elect- an election?
1: Yeah, so I mean that's that is the 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 very difficult question. Uh, uh I don't know necessarily. I, I have very little trust in our courts in general, but in this case, I think the constitution is is so clear. Mm-hmm. That the constitutional court might just say, listen, uh, there is no discretion here. The problem is, and this is what attorney Daniel Elof pointed out in a Center for Risk Analysis interview uh, recently, is that... Uh, a constitutional court litigation is going to take us right through October, right through November, into next year. Uh, uh, at which case, the, the judgment that the court will give will be at the time that Motsuneke postponed it to, or at, uh, uh, recommends it recommends it's postponed to, or even after that when we will receive judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's I, I almost want to say that's not even a possibility to to take it to court. Um, mm-hmm uh but if 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 it comes to that i think in this case the constitution is so crystal clear that the court can't help but come to the same conclusion that i have and that i believe mm. you have uh, uh unless it is so driven by this ideology but then yeah then our constitutional crisis would would uh, reach massive proportions if our highest court is actively disregarding the written text of the constitution and i'm not sure what what we can make of a situation mm. like that,
0: mm. Martin? Thank you once again for giving a very clear analysis on, on what could seem to be a, 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 a tricky legal issue, but it has profound ramifications. And actually, in, in a way, in its, own, in its own way, is very clear as to what route the, the uh, judiciary and the government should go and it, it'll be really dreadful for this, for this country if it to end up in a constitutional crisis where the constitutional court actually decides against the constitution in effect. Martin, um, where can people get hold of you if they want to read or hear anything about the work you do?
1: Uh, the main platform is my website so that 's martin fund one word uh, dot dot com i'm also on twitter that's at martin underscore a s f l and i'm also on facebook that is facebook dot com slash martin van liberty or one word so those are my three main platforms and uh, yeah feel free to uh, for anyone to get in touch with me and uh, follow up on any uh, additional questions about this if if, if they feel the need
0: Thank you so much, and uh, I hope we'll see you soon in the future. That
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me, Sarah.
0: Yes, two more stories to end with. The one is has the potential of real tragedy. It's not at home, fortunately. It's uh, in Ethiopia in the battle between Ethiopian government and uh, and 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 rebels. And it's it's a bizarre and potentially as i say very tragic uh, sort of set of circumstances because more than 30 corpses have been washed up on the banks of a river that abuts Ethiopia's northern region of tigray and and sudan and people who've retrieved these bodies both ethiopians and sudanese have said that You know, in some cases, people appear to have been beaten with their hands tied behind their backs. In other cases, they were shot. It it does vary, but the the accounts on on the Sudanese and the Ethiopian side seems to indicate the same things. I I hope this is not uh, or does not portend something much more horrible. And then, on a lighter note, gosh, doesn't take it it takes a lot. The divorce between Bill Gates and Melinda French Gates, co-founders of the world's largest private charitable foundations, was finalized on Monday. Um, they've been married for 27 years, but they've pledged to continue their philanthropic work together. They have agreed to how to divide their extraordinary marital assets, and that didn't, wasn't an issue that it was raised in court, obviously because agreement had been reached. So, there you have it. Uh, you know, it, it really it was a marriage. It looked like it, it was very solid. It, the two very bright people um, sharing interests, sharing knowledge, etc. But even uh, even then, the ways and the attractions of the flesh apparently will affect even one of the supremely richest men in the world, and his wife probably got the hell in. So with that, uh, we'll see you next, uh, next Tuesday Sorry, at, uh, at the same time at 9 o'clock. And in the meantime, could I encourage you to read, listen to, and watch our articles, podcasts, and videos on The Daily Friend, which is dailyfriend.co.za. See you again.